It's Monday, March 7th. Welcome to Market Foolery. I'm Chris Hill, joining me in studio today for Million Dollar Porto. Million dollar portfolio, Jason Moser, and from Stock Advisor Canada, Taylor Muckerman. I need more coffee. Clearly. <laughs> Not going to hold Don't it against all. you on a Monday. I appreciate Don't that. It is, it is a Monday. He's already salivating over that barbecue. Ugh. We'll get to South by Southwest in just a moment. Uh, we will also dip into the full mailbag, but let's start with the big story from the weekend, and that is the number one movie at the box office this weekend was Zootopia, which made it the let me go through a couple of the numbers here. $73 million in the US, 159 international, 232 million worldwide, making it the biggest opening weekend for a Disney animated film ever. And yes, Jason, that includes Frozen, which is pretty frightening if you think about it. That is, and Disney shareholders should be dancing a little jig right now because that's a that's that bodes very, very well. I you know, you made a point, um, before we started taping, in regard to Disney, kind of does a good job underselling itself with the trailers, and I remember vividly seeing the trailer for Zootopia and thinking, eh, "Yeah, I mean, it's kind of indifferent. I didn't really think one way or the other about it." Uh, and, he, and, and even my kids had the same kind of reaction. But we went and saw the movie yesterday, and man, I, I can't say enough good things. I mean, this was a very, very well done movie. It was good for kids. It was good for adults. You could go to this movie with no kids and still enjoy it, I think. Uh, all sorts of little Easter eggs. And then there's no question to me that they can spin this out and make more movies from it, more content from it. I'd be very surprised if they don't have an area at Disney World devoted uh, to Zootopia at some point. Because really... In a lot of the Disney movies, there's a character or there are a couple of characters that really shine. But the thing that shines in this movie is the actual place. I mean, Zootopia really is the star of the show, I think. So I think they'll be able to tell a lot of different stories just using this basic setting. Um, but again, a lot of fun. Not surprised that they had such a good uh, reaction in, in, the, uh, in the numbers there. And, and I suspect that they will... Uh, Exploit it to its fullest as they're so good at doing. Well, it's not just you that like this movie. On Rotten Tomatoes, it has a rating of 98%. I want to know the 2% are like, nah, who didn't like it? Well, you just you must know, not be a happy person. Yeah, that, I, I think, uh, yeah, there was, I forget the guy's name, but, but uh, when uh, they did Toy Story 3, yeah. which was just roundly praised, there was one guy, <laughs> there was one reviewer who's just like, ah, I didn't like it. Wasn't yeah. that good? I um, believe that's 20 years old. Uh, the original, yeah, yeah the original. Amazing. Um, it, I, to go back to the expectations, I, 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 this is increasingly something as a shareholder I like to see in in uh, management and just in companies in general, in the businesses in general, and that is not trying to overpromise. And I mean, you mentioned Zootopia. I can I can give you a whole list of Disney, whether it's a Pixar film or a Disney animated film. My in-the-moment reaction to seeing the first big trailer was, eh, that looks okay. I don't know. Maybe <laughs> is it funny? It doesn't seem that funny, you know, that sort of thing. And I think that I think that Disney and and Bob Iger and his team are are are. It's one of those businesses and, and one of those management teams that I think, whether whether they are doing that on purpose, whether that is something that comes from the top down, where Iger says, I don't want us overselling, or overpromising. Or if it's just an unspoken rule, that's I don't know. That's just something I'm increasingly looking for in management. 
Well, even just saying calling this a single movie is underselling it because they do such a good job of creating brands. So yeah. this movie isn't going to stop here, and it might not even stop with a sequel. Like you said, a portion of a theme park might be dedicated to it. You're going to see stuffed animals, toys, coloring books, most likely. Just like products that you can buy that aren't just a movie ticket are going to stem from this, just like they have from the Avengers. Um, Avengers of the or sorry, Avengers of the Galaxy, um, Iron Man, Guardians of the Galaxy. Guardians of the Galaxy. I'm getting them all confused. Um, <laughs> and Iron Man. So, Star Wars now. So it's just a, a brand building enterprise rather than a movie making enterprise. That's an interesting point you make there. I wonder if, I mean, obviously it's not just Bob Iger who's in charge of bringing all of this content to the screen. They have a a tremendous team with a lot of creative minds that work there. But the philosophy of hey yeah, let's not oversell this movie because there's no question the funniest parts are are nowhere to be seen really in the trailers i mean there's the one the interaction with the sloth at the dmv which is pretty funny but but that's not nearly the funniest part or parts of the movie so i wonder if that is sort of a philosophy that they have and like hey let's really just kind of because it seems like most trailers oversell like you get a lot of the action in the trailer then you go see the movie and you're like eh, that was kind of a letdown i've seen that with disney <laughs> disney mm-hmm. seems to be completely the opposite in many cases well, you think, think they've earned that though because yeah. they have been around for so long making hit after hit that maybe people are just like oh it's a good it's disney animated flick it's probably going to be good i i'm going to see it regardless of what the trailer shows um so they can keep some some of those easter eggs it's a very good point a lot of trust in that brand already so i've started going through the schedule at south by southwest interactive and and looking for sessions that i want that are of interest to me breakout sessions you're going to south by southwest i am that's right Um, but here's to to bring it back to the story here's one of the ones that i uh checked off as uh, a session that i'm interested in and it's entitled marketing films in a mobile world and it is, uh, at least if the description of the breakout session is to be believed, it is about how do you, in a world where increasingly people have a small screen that they are carrying in their pocket, how do you market to people on the small screen to get them to go to the big screen? And as a Disney shareholder, th- and uh, someone who is interested in movies in general, this is something I find very interesting from the standpoint of money. Because, yes, Zootopia has had a phenomenal opening weekend, and, and the money will continue to roll in. That said, I, I wasn't able to find information on how much they spent on production. I was able to find information on how much money they spent marketing this on television. And it's somewhere in the range of 15 to $20 million. Hmm. Now, again, this is a hit movie, and that's you can argue that's money well spent. But as a shareholder, I look at that and think, okay, you've spent... Let's just take the top end of the range. You spent $20 million marketing this movie on television. How much more profitable does it make Zootopia if that number gets cut in half? If you are able, if not just Disney, but any movie studio is able to cut down on their marketing spend, because when there are flops, and there are always flops, sure. somewhere in the top three list of reasons of why a film was a financial flop had to do with how much money they spent on marketing. And I'm just wondering if a few years from now, that becomes uh, a way to make films more profitable. Is we're much more targeted in our marketing, and we're just spending less because it, there's still that allure of television ad spending, whether, would, well, whether or not it's effective. I would imagine so, and I would imagine uh, as as time goes on, 
you're going to see a lot more of those television ad dollars going towards social media channels, Facebook, Twitter, Snapchat, Instagram. I mean, those are really the, the four networks where people are, and people of all ages. I mean, kids, like our kids' ages now, are just getting into that realm, and, and there's going to be a lot of data uh, here in the coming decades, really, and, and I think that targeted advertising is only going to get better. And I think they're going to really, because I mean, that's always been the argument against, not against, but really the the one real black mark against television advertising is that linear television it never really allowed that much granularity in how and how well your advertising actually was performing. I mean, you you get much more data here with, with the internet with networks. Um, and, and so I would imagine, especially a company like Disney with its financial resources uh, and the data that it already has, and the number of different ways it gets all of that data, I would imagine that'll only get better as time goes on. What a difference a year makes. A year ago, the big story coming out of the South by Southwest festival was, from the business side of things anyway, Meerkat, which was the live streaming video app. And uh, just did a quick Google search. Uh, found a story from mid-March of last year, and the headline is, How Meerkat Conquered All at South by Southwest, and referring to how the big story in 2007 at South by Southwest was Twitter, and then two years after that it was Foursquare, and now it's Meerkat. So that was almost a year ago. Here's a story from CNET uh, over the weekend. Meerkat, star of last year's South by Southwest, is ditching live streaming. Wasn't that the whole business? What happened? <laughs> what like if it's not live streaming, what is it now? Well, I think that's, that's the biggest question. question. Yeah. yeah, I mean that's probably uh, the question that hasn't necessarily been answered yet. I mean, I think that I mean that is that is a phenomenal turn of events within within the course of one year because I remember very vividly a year ago thinking, "Wow, this is pretty cool technology." I remember downloading the Meerkat app and and watching some of those presentations at South by Southwest and thinking. I didn't even have to go, and now I'm there. Yeah. So I think that there are there are cases where uh, live streaming is going to be tremendous um, in the future. And I think that Twitter management at the time was was obviously very smart to, to to acquire Periscope when it did. I think that this ultimately shows the power of distribution and how important that was to uh, Periscope, and in how important it was to Meerkat. Because once Twitter cut Meerkat out of its Social graph that that essentially cut Meerkat out of that huge reach of distribution there, and so now maybe 300 million users looks a little bit better than uh, what the media would have you believe it really is. But you have Twitter obviously spending a lot on Periscope to build that out, doing a wonderful job with it. Uh, you have Facebook jumping in now to do some live streaming as well. I've, I've not. Seen that or used it, but I imagine that just given the user base and the financial resources Facebook has, they can make that work to some degree if they want, uh, which puts Meerkat here in a clear third place. And, and it obviously wasn't going to be able to sustain itself. And so here you are today with them having to more or less pivot to a strategy which really the owner, founder, can't really succinctly define for us. And, and so to me, all, all I know is that they want to go to some form of video social networking, which to me is code for they're done. It's over. Not much room for third place in today's tech scene. Nope. Not at all. I think that's part of why investing in these type of cutting-edge 
technologies get so tricky, not just for individual investors like us, because Meerkat is not a publicly traded company, but I think that's part of what we've seen over the last year or so in the private markets. When you look at stories about the valuations of private companies and how, over the last six months, some of them are starting to have what is referred to as a down round, where the valuation yeah. in maybe the fourth round of financing is lower than the third round was. Well, I think you see a lot of the IPOs that have come out suffering once they hit the market, and that's probably contributing to that fact. These VCs thinking, oh crap, if we value this coming this high, chances are we're not going to get that money back in the market. I mean, they will because they all have the shares at the IPO price, but long term, it doesn't seem like these valuations are, are going to stand up with like GoPro and Shopify has been suffering over the last few months as well. So, a lot of these big name IPOs probably setting the stage for a decline in the private market valuations. There were a lot of people that jumped into Periscope, or not Periscope, but Meerkat, right when that came out, too. Um, it's very new technology, seemed very powerful, very cool. And, and as a private company, it, it raised a number of private dollars um, just on the hope. Really, that that was pretty cool technology, and they were kind of first to market, and and you know subsequently those those people lost their money more or less, and so it, there's there's a lot to be said. I mean, private private market investing is far more difficult in the sense that you don't know as much, and so the beauty of the public markets is that it, it there is a lot more information mm-hmm. available to us so that we can make better decisions, and I, I think sort of the bigger picture lesson of don't always just jump in without knowing what you're jumping into, right? I mean, the beauty of the the you know, investing in 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 public companies like we like we can is is that we are able to sift through this information and make some some fairly educated decisions. It doesn't mean we're always going to be right, but certainly chances are a lot better uh, than when you have uh, private privately held companies where the information is not as readily available. Well, and we've talked about this before. There there are there are certainly times when uh, and Apple is the company that gets referred to most often, certainly over the last few years. Uh, Alphabet as well, and I think Facebook is now in this in this category as well, uh, where people will say about a new up and coming technology, "Well, what happens if Apple or Alphabet or Facebook just decides they want to enter that space?" And that's that's certainly a concern. But as we've seen over the last five years, they don't. Go into all of those things, you know. No. When you know when when Twitter first started to get big, there are people looking at Apple and saying, "Well, what if Apple decides it wants to go after sure. this type of microblogging?" It's like, well, they could, but they're you know they haven't, and that's not really their history. In the case of Facebook, it's the same sort of thing. We've seen Facebook pass on any number of potential uh, industries to enter, but in the case of Live streaming video—that is one where they said, "Oh yeah, no, we're interested in that." Yeah, it's one they're dabbling, and it's one. I mean, I think it's far too early to say whether they'll have any success with it or not, because it definitely doesn't play towards the strength of Facebook's platform. And in, in, I think in a lot of cases, particularly with the sort of app-oriented environment that we have today, in many cases, it's easier to buy it than to build it. And so we've seen with Facebook, for example, a number of times where they tried to build something. To sort of mirror a competitor, and, and they haven't really had much success there. Now, on the flip side, they have had a lot of, of of success buying things and integrating that. So they have kind of a suite of apps. Twitter, to to a smaller degree, I think has that as well because they have Periscope and Vine. Um, but again, I, I think it's 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 one thing to look at a company and say, "Wow, that is a huge company with a huge reach and all the financial resources in the world." 
But that doesn't necessarily mean that they can just jump in there and do whatever they want, because there's still a skill. There's a skill set involved with being able to pull something like that off. And 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 we've seen even even the biggest player in the space, Facebook, witness probably I would say more failures in trying to to build their own uh, than successes. And 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 on the flip side, they've had a lot of. Uh, that a lot of success buying. I mean, the Instagram acquisition obviously was was tremendous. Mm-hmm. WhatsApp remains to be Still seen. To be proven, yeah. But but again, I mean, you, you'll see. I think as time goes on, these the winners are becoming more apparent in this space every day. Marketfoolery at fool dot com is our email address from Matt Spordone in Boston, Massachusetts. What's the difference between Gap and non Gap re- reported earnings? Some companies I hear have positive non Gap but negative Gap. Is this just fuzzy math being done by companies to make their <laughs> earnings look better? Should it be a concern if one is positive and the other is negative? What yeah? What is this? I honestly, when I see references to Gap and non Gap earnings. I, what happens in my brain is I just skip over it. <laughs> really? Yeah. Well, that's well, an like, easy, yeah. easy thing to do. I mean, there's a lot of math going in there. I don't think it's all fuzzy. You look at restructuring costs, write downs, things like that being added back or subtracted to, to get to these non GAAP numbers because there is some lumpiness in certain industries. Wait, what does GAAP stand for? G A A? Generally accepted accounting principles. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So it kind of just streamlines the whole accounting process for companies across various industries, but not every industry is the same. So they they take liberties with a few different things. Um, but when you think, when I think about it, anyways, is you look at the current oil market and mining markets. People are taking these write downs and restructuring costs, qualifying them as non-recurring. But chances are they're going to reoccur in the next three to five years because this, these are cyclical industries. So sometimes I think that they're taken too liberally. But um, for the most part, I don't distrust. A company that's rep- representing both because they're, they're, they have to represent Gap, but then they can throw these in there to kind of even things out. Because a lot of analysts, I think it's more to cater to Wall Street because a lot of these analysts do strip out these one-time events to make their models a little easier to understand. Yeah, I think uh, so. I mean, it's it's worth looking at at both sets of numbers. Non-GAAP numbers give you a better sense of how the real business is performing, what the actual business is doing, mm-hmm. because GAAP numbers will reflect certain accounting principles that, that don't necessarily tell you the underlying strength, fundamentals of the business. Now, I, I will also say that with any business, uh, typically you can go to the investor relations site, you can look at their quarterly earnings releases, and if you go into those quarterly earnings releases, the press releases, they'll have a section at the bottom that breaks out how they're defining non-GAAP. And so, they'll say something like, our non-GAAP numbers are presented for investors' consideration, and these non-GAAP numbers include... And and oftentimes, if you look at at something like LinkedIn or Facebook or Twitter, these tech companies, a lot of times, there'll be something like stock-based compensation Mm -hmm. they'll back out, or whether it's something in regard to intangible assets. But but the nice thing is that you'll see those those defined in those releases, and so take a look at the press releases themselves, and you can understand better exactly what they're accounting for there. And then you can kind of look at the numbers there to see, because a lot of times those those non-GAAP numbers do give you a better idea of actually how the fundamental business is performing. And so, that's why a lot of times, I mean, we'll look at both. And I think in most cases, uh, the expectations numbers that you see Wall Street present are typically non-GAAP-based numbers. Um, because, again, they kind of give you a better idea of how the business is really doing. Do you ever look at uh, the non-GAAP 
definitions and, sure. and roll your eyes and just think, come <laughs> yeah. on, really? Like, well, what was it? Was it Groupon that one time where it was like, I don't think it was a non-GAAP number, but they had like a definition for an adjusted, uh, some type of adjusted net income. I think it was Groupon. It was, it was, like, it was when it, Groupon- it backed out marketing expense yeah. or something <laughs> when, like that? When Groupon filed to go public, their initial filing to the SEC included a completely new <laughs> metric that they made up and yeah, it was it was uh, something where once you sifted through the language, you realized that this Groupon, which is a marketing company, was had created a metric that backed out marketing spending. Red sure, <laughs> exactly. You know, it's like when uh, I think when uh, the European Union was was first formed, wasn't it Greece that basically submitted the country's balance sheet and they backed out military spending it was basically like <laughs> really, hey, wait yeah. what are you switzerland all of a sudden you or do you, you know it's like yeah you know. i think that's a, it's it's a very very good question and i think it's one with no simple cut and dry answer but i do think that whenever you look at any of these businesses consult that that press release and you can see company by company what they're accounting for there and that will give you a better idea um you know, you can spot those those sorts of red flags. Yeah, like if anything, the added explanation exactly. is beneficial. Exactly, more transparency. Yeah. It's a good question because I think you know, on the surface, and I think Matt was sort of getting at this with his question. You know, once you realize, well, gap, it's generally accepted. Non-gap, ah, <laughs> this isn't generally accepted. Well, you know, immediately my mind goes to, oh, is it illegal? Because that's <laughs> that's what I'm thinking. Uh, question from Walter Z. You were talking about Costco's business model and questioning its current viability, but I recall a while ago you thought Costco was the type of business you can put in your IRA and forget about it because of how solid a company it was. Granted, I think this is when Jim Senegal was still the CEO, but because you said management was so solid, there wasn't an issue transferring power. Walmart was also a powerhouse, but the same praise was given to them as you gave to Costco. So I guess my question is, what made you change your mind? Um, Jason, I think you were the one who, who made this point most recently about Costco. And I think, if, if I can attempt to read between the lines on Walter's question, part of what he's getting at is, you know, there, there are, whether it's Costco or, you know, there are other businesses about which one of us has said the following. This is a company you don't have to worry about. You Disney. Can, <laughs> Disney, exactly. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, reading between the lines, it seems like part of his question is, at what point do you start to worry about a company that you previously said, ah, you don't have to worry about this one? Yeah, I, I think um, first and foremost, I, I would say in, in most absolute terms, there is no such thing as a stock, an individual stock that is just set it and forget it. I don't, I don't think you can do that with any company out there. Okay. Now, there are varying degrees of uh, stability there, and and I think that Costco is certainly one of the more stable, more reliable uh, holdings out there. I think that the one thing you could just kind of go with, set it and forget it, would be if you were just investing in uh, the S and P index fund, because over time, that's really the whole point, anyway, right? Mm-hmm. If if we're not participating in that market, we're not we're not going to win. And if the S and P five hundred disappears, I think we got bigger problems <laughs> yeah. on hand anyway. So um, the old IRA I, might not be there. Either. Yeah, I think so. Costco. I mean, this is something we're deliberating a lot on on MDP right now, just because we have Costco in the portfolio. It's about a four percent position. It's done very well, um, but we are asking ourselves questions about the future of Costco. It's it's not a question of leadership. Leadership has been very solid. Um, but we do feel like 
with what Costco has done so well to this point in that membership model and growing such a a reliable membership base, the market's always forward looking. We have to think about what about the future subscribers? What about the future members? And and is this as attractive a model as it was for a generation ago? Given the uh, the proliferation of of e-commerce and in mobile technology, people are shopping in many different ways now, and and I think it can be argued a lot of people, and I would put myself in this camp, don't want to go to a Costco to mm-hmm. to shop in that sort of zoo-like environment. Um, and so our questions are more based on the general growth prospects of the company. Um, I think over the course of the next. Ten years, they're still in pretty good shape because they're going to still have a number of, of members that are going to keep on renewing. Uh, our questions are always kind of looking at this future generations of, uh, generations of shoppers, but um, again, varying varying levels of risk. I think Costco is one of the lower risk investments out there. I wouldn't say any of them are set it and forget it, but I also wouldn't put Costco as, as you know one that I'd be losing sleep over uh, at night at, at least right now. Well, and I think that one of the ways to think about this is how long a leash are you giving any yeah. particular stock in mm-hmm. your portfolio? Uh, and and in terms of checking in because there are some there are some investments I know in my lifetime there are investments I've made where I'm Checking on a, a monthly or even weekly basis, like how is the business doing? How is the and ultimately I realized that's not the type of investor I am <laughs> because <laughs> because I literally will lose sleep at night over that sort of thing. So for me, it's usually on a quarterly basis, but in some cases, I've got a couple of investments that I think you know what I'm I, unless I hear otherwise, I'm good with this one. Well, if they've done as well as Costco, you give them a lot longer lease because they've proven that that this is a reasonable thing to not pay attention every single day to this company. But um, long term, yeah, people can subscribe now to have toothpaste sent to them on a monthly basis from Amazon rather than mm-hmm. having to go to Costco and buy the seventeen pack. You can just have it sent to you at a discount. I think five to ten percent if you subscribe. So. Businesses like that can be disrupted. Um, personally, I don't have anything that I would never look at for an entire year. Starbucks might be the closest, um, but I, I just like reading about the stocks I own. So it's it's probably more of a habit than actual necessity. I, I want to touch on one thing that Walter referred to, and give Costco credit for this. He referred to the transfer of of power. Yes. When Senegal, who had been CEO for about three decades, stepped down, and Craig Jelinek, who Almost no one had ever heard of before was tapped to be the CEO, and the fact that the business has not just survived but has thrived under Jelinek's leadership—that is such a testament to the business to Senegal, uh, because we've seen plenty of cases. I mean, it is much more common that a, a CEO, a new CEO, comes in and struggles to one degree or another. Yeah, I mean that was the biggest question we had. Really, was was when that leadership transition was taking place, and, and as as is the case most of the time, whenever you see a COO moving into the CEO role, that's usually a pretty good sign because the COO is typically very intimately familiar with the business, and so uh, Craig Jelinek, I think, stepped in there and didn't miss a beat. One thing I started thinking about more and more, and th- I think this is such a great question because I think we. Oftentimes, it can be 
construed in in sort of foolish investing and buy to hold investing. I mean, there's a little bit of a difference between buy and hold and buy to hold, right? Buy and hold kind of implies set it and forget it. Buy to hold means that we intend to buy uh, and and hold these shares for a long period of time, but we need to keep up with them as well. Mm -hmm. And I think that anybody who's going to own individual stocks needs to be prepared to check in on that story at least once a year, if not if not more. some some companies obviously are a little bit riskier than others. One thing I've noticed on the on the Costco earnings calls here the past few quarters, which has always kind of baffled me because Costco is a very simple business to understand. It is retail. They're selling you stuff. Simple. But, but there are more analyst questions on that call than I can recall seeing on on virtually any other conference call over over the last few Why do you quarters. Think that is? Well, I think that is because Analysts and us included, we're wondering what does the future hold for this business? How exactly are they dealing with this changing retail environment as e-commerce grows, as consumers sort of change their preferences and how they shop? You see Costco doing things like they've made they've run some promotions on Living Social, for example. Uh, they are acting as a supplier for Boxed.com, which is an e-commerce play, uh, very similar to Costco, but no membership model there. So you start wondering about the different options Costco has down the line, partnerships it may form. Um, New directions they may try to take the business, and and so I think a lot of the questions sort of center around trying to get a better idea of what the future really holds. Because for the longest time, it has been just a simple story that has done very well. Walter asked a second question. The first one was referred to you, Jason. This one Uh was clearly uh, for me. Uh, Walter asks, "You mentioned that you have other people do your taxes because of how tedious it is to do. Though I agree, doing your taxes every year is like having an annual root canal." (laughs) Isn't it good to do it yourself once in a while? It's like a review of how well you did last year and what you should try to do next year. No. No. No, it's not. <laughs> well, a, your tax accountant can I tell get, you how well you did I get, last and, year. And, and here's, here's, the, uh, here's the analogy I'll make. Because there are some things I will do around the house that I get some measure of pride out of doing them. Hey, I vacuum but that rug. When, but when I when <laughs> I what's that? I vacuum that rug. I vacuum that rug. Look how clean that rug is. Uh, but a couple of years ago, when I bought a new TV for the family room, I thought to myself, you know what? This is a very large thing that needs to be mounted on the wall. I know wall, where this is going. And I could probably figure out how to do this myself. But all I'm going to do is just worry. I know that I can pay someone to come in and mount this on the wall, and they're professionals, and they've done it a hundred times. Might come with a warranty too, and and I'm not going to think twice about whether or not that TV is going to come crashing down. And I could do the best possible job I can possibly do, and I'm still going to wonder about it. That's how I feel. Some things are better. Some things are better left unknown. I mean, for me personally, leave it to the professional. We have a guy that does our taxes. I get enough information just compiling the paperwork. I mean, we we have a rental property down in Georgia, so I go through statements and kind of compile all these numbers, and that's about as far as I want to go with it because I know that from that point on, all this results, all the the end result is me stroking a check to to Uncle Sam, and I'm just never happy about it. So I just let them take care of it and move on. Thanks for being here, guys. Thank you. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against, so don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. That's going to do it for this edition of Market Foolery. The show is mixed by Dan Boyd. I'm Chris Hill. Thanks for listening. We'll see you tomorrow.